Good morning. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. And this is the third in our series on coronavirus and the Constitution. Three months into the pandemic, things are opening back up in fits and starts with legal challenges about lingering shutdowns that may no longer be justified, as well as other shutdowns that were always on dubious legal grounds. We're still talking about the state's police power to govern for public health and safety. And this is a power that's not unlimited, uh, like any power, uh, but uh, governors and mayors do have broad discretion, assuming they have a good enough justification uh, for putting in their restrictions and regulations. Uh, three months ago, uh, these officials were acting on the best epidemiological data. Uh, the idea is that we were all potentially fist swingers. You know, my freedom ends at the point of your nose. Well, if asymptomatic people could transmit uh, a deadly virus, then uh, shelter-in-place orders and the like uh, could be justified. Some state actors have gone beyond their state constitutional limits. A few weeks ago, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin found uh, that that state's health authorities uh, violated the separation of powers, went against uh, Wisconsin administrative law. There's also been uh, lower court rulings in Oregon, Ohio, and Illinois about uh, different aspects of uh, those states' Uh, uh, shut down orders in whole or in part. I think that's gratifying that we still have checks and balances, that we uh, the the um, uh, there's no pandemic exception to the Constitution, as the Supreme Court of Texas put in a, in a concurrence a few weeks ago. And this all goes to Jacobson versus Massachusetts, a famous Supreme, a now famous Supreme Court case from 1905, uh, allowing mandatory vaccination. Although Jacobson still recognized that there are uh, limits. Uh, let me quote from that. If health regulations went beyond the necessity of the case and under the guise of exerting a police power violated the rights secured by the Constitution, the court would be bound to hold such laws uh, invalid. And so uh, even beyond kind of broad-based challenges to uh, uh, lockdown orders, some specific measures have gone too far. Restrictions on drive-in churches when drive-in uh, liquor stores across the street uh, are open. Uh, tennis courts, roping off store aisles that have so-called non-essential goods rather than simply restricting the number of people per square foot of a store, that sort of thing. Uh, a woman in Dallas who was jailed for opening her hair salon, that was ultimately uh, reversed. An Ohio court ruled uh, stopping the closure of gyms because it wasn't the proper authorities. Uh, they weren't exercising uh, that kind of power. The attorney general uh, last month uh, sent a letter saying that the federal government would be enforcing people's civil rights uh, uh, and, and it's done so in uh, several occasions, particularly with regard to religious liberty. And the Supreme Court, speaking of religious liberty, just last week issued a five to four decision uh, not stopping a California a restriction on in-person church gatherings, although that might need to be reevaluated uh, now that California has permitted the demonstrations and, and protests. And so uh, if churches are similarly situated to those kind of secular gatherings, maybe uh, the law looks different. Uh, even if the orders all go away tomorrow, though, people won't feel safe right away, although public opinion is changing rapidly uh, on all of that and shows that uh, private action is just as or more important than public law. Now that we flatten the curve, preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed, indeed, healthcare workers have been laid off, people want to resume their lives and recoup as much as they can. Conventional wisdom is that we could get things moving quicker if we had broader testing programs and more ambitious contact tracing. But can the government, any level, force you to get tested before you go to certain places or participate in certain activities? Can it make you wear a mask uh, whenever you go outside? Can businesses require temperature testing uh, at the door? Can the government work with technology companies and force you to download apps to track your phone and make sure you're following distancing guidelines? Whether digital or analog, what kinds of powers can contact tracers have, and how does all this relate to the Fourth Amendment? For all of these uh, issues, I'm going to turn to my colleague Matthew Feeney, the director of Cato's Project in Emergency Technologies, and uh, federal uh, 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 FTC commissioner uh, Christine Wilson, uh, who had a very interesting May 13th uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Coronavirus Demands a Privacy Law. Turn it over to Matthew first.
Matthew seems to be muted. I'm here now. Sorry about that. Yes. There um, we go. I hope you, there we go. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Ilya. And uh, I'd like to uh, start by pointing out that I come at this uh, through a technology uh, and civil liberties uh, perspective. I uh, treat this issue as one that, that implicates, obviously, the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures, as well as new and emerging technologies. And we're in a situation now where it looks to many people as if increased surveillance would actually be uh, very useful. Uh, we're in a situation now where uh, there's an ongoing pandemic and you can reliably tell uh, a lot about the spread of the pandemic depending on where people have been, arguably. And the issue is that uh, many people have talked about emerging technologies in the context of contact tracing, which is to find out more about where people have been and who they've spoken to. Uh, and many of uh, the viewers will be familiar with uh, the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures. And since 1967, uh, the uh, expectation of privacy test has really been the lodestar of uh, this amendment. And when we're thinking about uh, reasonable expectations, as well as uh, some of the emerging technologies we've seen recently, there are, there are two cases I'd like to discuss because I think they're relevant to the conversation that Ilya outlined. Uh, the first is US v. Jones, which concerns the use of a GPS tracker on a Jeep. Uh, here, the law enforcement officials put a GPS tracker on, on a Jeep uh, belonging to Antoine Jones, who they suspected of being a drug dealer. Uh, this was done uh, without a valid warrant. And uh, there, the, the court uh, took a bit of a dodge by saying, well, this physical attachment onto the car uh, actually implicated a, a trespass onto the vehicle and therefore is... Uh, unconstitutional. Um, it's a notable case because there was a five-justice so-called shadow majority where you had uh, justices, the, the traditional liberals as well as Alito, uh, arguing basically, well, it can't just be this. You know, We have to think about reasonable expectations uh, and tracking. Uh, the other is a case that came out a few years ago. Uh, this is Carpenter v. United States. Uh, there's uh, many, many viewers will be familiar, I hope, that their phone is playing a constant game of Marco Polo with nearby cell towers. Uh, this case involved the government access to information gathered about Timothy Carpenter's whereabouts in order to secure a conviction for armed robbery. And what was interesting here is that the, the court did hold that the warrantless collection of these kind of records for about a week did violate the, the Fourth Amendment, but it's a very, very narrow holding with the Chief Justice noting that the opinion didn't touch other surveillance technologies. And this brings us to the ongoing conversation about the kind of technologies we're concerned about. You've seen some people uh, from Apple and Google talking about Bluetooth technology so that if you download a certain app, uh, your phone will notify you if you've been within physical proximity of someone uh, who has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the issue here is that uh, because Carpenter's a narrow decision, we haven't had any ruling on this technology per se. Uh, what I will say is when it comes to government mandating of the downloading of apps onto phones, you potentially do implicate Jones here because it is potentially arguably a trespass onto your property. Uh, this and, and other issues were discussed by President uh, Professor Rosenstein from the University of uh, Minnesota Law School, who I had, had a great article about not just how this is a potentially a trespass, but also raising the issue of the special needs doctrine, that under the Fourth Amendment, there is a special needs exception. Uh, usually this is discussed in the context of uh, drunk driving stops or searching student athletes. Uh, but we do know that, for example, Justice Kavanaugh uh, does believe, for example, that the uh, bulk NSA metadata collection was justified under special needs. And it's possible that you could have a pandemic special need. Uh, Ilya did mention that there so far isn't a pandemic exception to the Constitution, but uh, that's the kind of question that I think courts will have to consider if it becomes mandatory, if there's government mandates for certain technologies to be installed or owned. Uh, and with that, I'm happy to turn it over uh, to Christine. Before Christine starts, I should remind the viewers that you can ask us questions, whether on the website or through Facebook, Twitter, and uh, YouTube using the hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Christine. Uh, you're muted now, Christine. Yeah. 
There you go. And we were warned not to make the, that uh, The technical and, host shouldn't have reminded everybody <laughs> that uh, we're, the technical <laughs> host shouldn't have reminded everybody to mute themselves and then unmute. Uh, that caused more problems than it fixed. So thank you, Ilya, for inviting me to participate in the program. And thank you, Matthew, for laying such a great foundation for my discussion. I come at this as a perspective of, uh, of a a lawyer who practices consumer privacy data security law, the Federal Trade Commission has uh, does have responsibility for consumer privacy and data security enforcement in the United States using its general authority. We do not yet have a comprehensive privacy law, a federal privacy law in this country. We do have some sector specific privacy legislation, including health data, financial data, children's data, but lots of gaps are emerging as technologies evolve. And we also have a multiplying set of state and international mm -hmm. regimes, which is creating a patchwork of laws. And so on a bipartisan basis, for many years, the FTC has called for federal privacy legislation that would create predictability and certainty for businesses, but would also provide consumers with transparency about how their data are collected, used, monetized, and shared. And the transparency would help create digital trust. People may be unwilling to adopt new technologies if they're not sure what's happening with their data. And in any event, people can make more informed choices about what products and services to use if they understand the implications for their data. Now, the coronavirus, as it began to spread around the world, drove a new aspect of these discussions and I believe underscored the need for a federal privacy law as efforts to engage in contact tracing and containment of the virus began to multiply, we saw mandatory apps deployed around the world. We also saw mechanisms formerly used for prisoners applied to those exposed with COVID-19. So for example, risk trackers, mandatory risk trackers. And, uh, and this of course raises concerns particularly because we're talking about sensitive health data, sensitive location data, and privacy principles have a lot to say about these issues, including use limitations for data that is collected. Mm -hmm. If you're collecting it for purposes of containing the virus, it shouldn't be used for any other purpose. Data minimization, only collect the data that you actually need to implement uh, the, the contact tracing and containment of the virus. But this issue is also important for Fourth Amendment reasons, and this is one of the things that I wanted to emphasize in my op-ed. Matthew described the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And when you understand the implications of that test, you begin to realize that the commercial data, that the data that's collected on the commercial side actually is intricately related to government action. It is, uh, you know, the, the reasonable expectation of privacy test really complicates the relationship between government action and commercial data collection. And so uh, we're talking about heightened concerns here. And in fact, um, we have heard that recent initiatives to track protesters uh, may be using contact tracing information, which brings yet another wrinkle to this story. Last weekend, Minnesota's public safety commissioner used the phrase contact tracing to describe law enforcement efforts in connection with the murder of, uh, with the protests that were taking place in, in connection with the murder of George Floyd. And the statement, uh, it seems to have triggered widespread social media claims that contract tracing apps are being used by law enforcement agencies uh, to, to track protesters for non-public health purposes. And some of the social media discussions reference the technology that Apple and Google have worked on that, uh, that Matthew described for us. Interestingly, Travis LeBlanc, who is a Democrat on the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, here in the United States, sent a letter to Acting Secretary Chad Wolf on Monday to the Department of Homeland Security. He said, um, the pandemic is not a hall pass to disregard the privacy and civil liberties of the traveling public. And I concur heartily in, in what Travis said. So the, the point of my op-ed 
even before the protests over the murder of George Floyd raised new issues was to say, we need federal privacy legislation that can help apply some of the principles, the very familiar principles that we talk about in the privacy arena to the collection of health data, location data. And, uh, and with these established legal boundaries, companies would be better equipped to determine when the government is asking them to cross the line for the public good and whether they should require a subpoena or inform customers before turning over the data. Great, uh, thank you uh, for that, uh, uh, Christine. Uh, Matt, do you have anything uh, in response to that or did, did, did uh, Christine's remarks uh, trigger anything that you wanted to, to add? Uh, only the very briefly that I, I think uh, uh, the commissioner's comments really do highlight that the Supreme Court sets the, the floor, not the ceiling, that although we might be uh, upset with a lot of Supreme Court precedent when it comes to things like uh, the reasonable expectation of privacy test or the third party doctrine and a host of other issues, uh, nonetheless, that doesn't prevent uh, the legislature from improving upon that standard, which is uh, obviously what uh, Christine is calling for. Yeah, yeah I didn't know a, about- There's a great uh, book. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah I was just gonna say there's a great book called Habeas Data that traces the line of Supreme Court cases that culminates with Jones and Carpenter and makes the point in the last chapter that technology continues to outpace what the courts can handle and that it really is up to Congress to step in and address this issue. And so I completely agree with Matthew that the Supreme Court is setting the floor, but we can do better. The court also never wants to get ahead of technology, whether we're dealing with the Fourth Amendment or privacy area or uh, antitrust or, or any any uh, legal areas where technology can uh, disrupt, uh, as it were, uh, legal doctrine. And so in this area, what's interesting about the confluence of the Jones and Carpenter cases is that uh, this is, you know, Fourth Amendment privacy protections uh, often bring the left and the right together against the middle, or rather the you know, the principled versus the pragmatic, if you will, on the court. Uh, and so uh, in these cases, you see Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch perhaps forging uh, the next doctrine, you know, the reasonable expectation of privacy, that doctrine 50 years old in an analog world that in turn uh, uh, updated previous doctrine from uh, the early days of the telephone. Uh, maybe now in the digital age, uh, whether you're focusing on uh, people's uh, 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 strong protections for their uh, personal effects, which can be all contained effectively on your phone. Think about uh, you know your financial health records, family photos. So much is on that one little device, more than the police could get from uh, you know two hours of ransacking your home, perhaps. Um, you know those kind of principles, the meaning of of those things, along with Justice Sotomayor's concern uh, for. Um, uh, interpreting uh, people's privacy in, in, in a modern age where police have different tools and, and what have you. And it, it could, you know, people have been expecting, uh, even as the court takes very small steps in the Fourth Amendment arena to, to update uh, uh, doctrine, uh, people have been, been expecting kind of a, uh, a supersession of the uh, reasonable expectation test. But maybe this uh, emergency type, unusual pandemic related situation will provide a case. Uh, contact tracing uh, or otherwise where uh, where that will happen. Um, we have a, a question that maybe we should address at the outset, kind of the most obvious ones. Uh, Matthew, why don't you, this is, comes in from uh, Segalen Boshard, who asks, can states require their citizens to download a contact tracing app? Uh, my understanding of the, the, the law is that, that no, um, it would, of course, they could under certain circumstances, I suppose, you can imagine a situation uh, where uh, there's, uh, again, this gets us back to, to, to special needs, where there's actually potentially a, a carve out. But as things stand, especially in this, this context, I don't see that being legally feasible. Uh, something that, that we should keep in mind uh, is something like the the following, which is you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in illegal contraband or illegal uh, behavior necessarily. So uh, this this gets us back to uh, technologies or techniques like drug sniffing dogs. So I suppose it's hard to imagine how this would work. But if there was a technology that uh, only notified the police when you broke uh, some kind of lockdown order, 
uh, then potentially you'd be in, in safe legal grounds. But at the moment, I don't see that being feasible. And I'll remind people that uh, you can ask your questions either on the Cato uh, website, if you're viewing it there, or on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube with the hashtag uh, Cato SCOTUS. Um, Christine, as, as you're looking at and proposing a, a federal privacy law, how do you delineate what's there for, for whether the FTC or another federal agency to do versus leaving things to the states? So it, that is, it's a great question that that actually proved to be one of the two sticking points in, in getting federal privacy legislation across the finish line. The first sticking point has been preemption. And should there be preemption, including of California's new law, CCPA, which sets a very high bar for privacy. And I think that preemption is important because the internet doesn't stop at state boundaries, let alone national boundaries. Uh, I, I believe that the Federal Trade Commission should be given authority to enforce federal privacy legislation and that the state AGs should also have authority to enforce that legislation as force multipliers for the Federal Trade Commission. But, um, but I think that state laws that set different levels of protection for consumers will, uh, will just maintain this patchwork of, of laws that is going to lead to consumer confusion about what their rights are and what kinds of data are allowed to be collected in any given uh, in any given state. And then also uh, chill innovation and investment in new technology by companies who are um, who are facing a essentially a patchwork of laws and need to, to tailor their efforts to a lowest common denominator. Uh, just to be clear for the non-lawyers watching this, preemption means that sometimes the federal government uh, can, uh, through the supremacy clause in the Constitution, can trump uh, state law that's to the contrary. The preempt, you can preempt that law in the, in the legalese. Uh, but of course, uh, you always have to look at whether the federal government has uh, the requisite powers. In this case, it would be uh, to regulate interstate commerce with data uh, uh, traveling uh, all over the place. Uh, uh, as well as these these civil liberties concerns, but um, uh, you you could have uh, cooperative uh, federalism in a sense, or rather state and federal regulations that both have to be satisfied uh, when dealing with this sensitive data. Uh, Matthew, did you have something to add there? Uh, no, I would only uh, actually something did just occur to me. Um, so that you have seen that there have been uh, states that have passed their own. Uh, privacy, privacy law. So California being perhaps the most notable, and uh, I, I think the experiences there uh, should make us cautious about what's involved in in federal privacy legislation. Because I, part of uh, what I worry about is not only uh, privacy, but also uh, speech and making sure there is an innovative entrepreneurial market for tech. And I, I, I do worry that if uh, we're not careful, that uh, Congress could end up passing some kind of federal uh, privacy law that actually is anti-competitive, that only powerful market incumbents uh, can comply. Yeah, so Ilya, if I could take a moment. Sure. Um, that, that's actually the, ex that's the experience that the EU saw with its privacy legislation, GDPR, and they saw an increase in the market shares of some of the largest incumbents for advertising like Google and Facebook, and they saw venture capital uh, investing in smaller companies dry up because of this, um, essentially this entrenchment of incumbents and the chilling of competition, uh, given so much emphasis on privacy, the costs of compliance were incredibly high. And a lot of smaller companies either couldn't uh, afford those costs or chose not to bear those costs. You also saw lots of US companies withdrawing from the EU market because of the cost of compliance. And so I completely agree with Matthew that we do need to, to take competition into account. We don't want a privacy law that chills innovation and stifles competition. At the same time, a privacy law could help boost trust in new technologies. Right now, consumers realize they have no transparency with respect to what data is being collected and how it's being shared and deployed. In fact, Matthew was talking about mandatory use of apps 
in, in response to a question about that. In fact, um, if it were voluntary, the Washington Post conducted a poll and found that basically more than half of Americans would be unwilling to download those apps because they don't trust that the tech companies are going to keep their identities private if they end up testing positive for COVID-19. And so that lack of digital trust leads to a lack of use of emerging technologies and, you know, and that can lead to uh, chilled innovation, decreased incentives to invest in innovation. But during the time of a pandemic, actually, the, the lack of confidence in tech companies and contact tracing uh, could prove fatal. So there are, there are very serious consequences of getting it right, but also uh, of not doing anything. Yeah, sure. Like with any regulation, uh, you have to guard against the uh, the the big established incumbent players always having more money to to, to spend on compliance officers and and lawyers that that can crowd out their their would be entrepreneurial uh, competitors. Uh, Matthew, I know that we've been talking uh, in the last uh, weeks uh, offline about whether digital contact tracing is even effective. I mean, if if you're in a in a fairly dense urban environment and you get a ping that you're somewhere close to or have been somewhere close to someone who's infected, how useful is that? And, and conversely, would it give, uh, you know, is there a danger that thereby the authorities would just lock down, you know, a thousand people that are in a relatively small geographic area uh, just because everyone's so close together without really uh, giving any parsimony to the, uh, to the contact uh, uh, tracing? That is that is a real concern. I think uh, I hope that that lawmakers and uh, law enforcement officials are taking lessons from the current pandemic. I think it's fair to say that uh, you can make a strong argument that this kind of contact tracing is highly effective uh, at the beginning of the outbreak, where you have a, a handful of, of cases. However, where we are now, I think there are serious questions about how effective it would be. Uh, so, for example, as Ilya pointed out, uh, the the Bluetooth technology or uh, that kind of technology that's been discussed in this context uh, notifies you if you've been close to another telephone, which presumably is on a person who is uh, tested positive. Now, if you're in a in a dense apartment building or if you're out on the street and a bus pulls up next to you and the person inside the bus has tested positive and you're outside the bus and you you are negative, uh, it's it, that's not exactly the the kind of dangerous exposure that I think a lot of people who are designing these technologies are are, um, are worried about or, or health professionals are worried about. Uh, the fact is that you're going to uh, put a lot of people into lockdown uh, in many, many environments if that kind of tracing is what's used. And some, some could make the argument, of course, that, look, maybe it's better to be overly cautious, that we should lock down entire apartment buildings or maybe whole towns and cities, uh, because in this kind of environment, everyone's going to be notified they've been in close contact. Uh, and that that's then a question for local officials about how much of the economy they're willing to sacrifice for that kind of degree of, of health and public safety. Uh, but the, the, I, I think it's very important, as, um, and I'm glad Ilya highlighted this, it's very important that as well as the constitutional issues and the legal issues, we should also have a discussion about the technology and whether it would even be effective at this point. Here's a related question from uh, Aaron Kremen. Is an additional app even needed? All phones are tracked now. I would assume that information is de-identified to some degree but we know through the accuracy of online advertising that you don't actually have to actually know who I am in order to know who I am. Mm -hmm. This, this gets to a, a doctrine that we haven't discussed, uh, which, which piggybacks off reasonable expectation, which is the so-called third party doctrine. This idea being uh, that, that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy and information you quote volunteer to third parties, such as your telephone company or your internet service provider, uh, and Congress has improved upon this floor, and uh, but nonetheless, it still remains the case that uh, you don't have the degree of privacy in a lot of information you give to internet companies that you would uh, of, of pieces of property you have in your home, for example. Uh, so the, the the question is correct that there is a lot of information out there already about where phones are located, uh, but that was the kind of uh, data that was at issue in in Carpenter, for example. Uh, and there, I think if the court was to consider other kind of tracking technologies, they, they would likely come to a similar conclusion in Carpenter, which is, well, for this particular kind of tracing as used by governments, that's important. You know, the Fourth Amendment protects against government action. Uh, as far as the government's concerned, actually, this would probably run awry of the Fourth Amendment's 
uh, protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, but when it comes to whether Google could just volunteer all this information uh, to the FBI or to the Department of Justice or to uh, Health and Human Services, uh, that's more in uh, Christine's wheelhouse, I suppose. But uh, I, I would say that uh, at least from a law enforcement perspective, in the wake of Carpenter, you hope that uh, they'd be somewhat hesitant to, to try and engage in that sort of snooping. Christine, do you have anything on that? So I would say that goes to the, the, the digital trust issue. We have seen Apple respond uh, vehemently when the government tries to collect information from it with respect to potential crimes that have been committed. And it is, it is an ongoing question that companies are grappling with. Uh, when and under what circumstances do they need to turn information over to the government? And, uh, and, and we saw in Carpenter one answer to one narrow question. Uh, we've also seen with respect to contact tracing and with respect to uh, other technologies deployed, um, these questions are arising. And I think federal privacy legislation could have provided some guardrails here. But for example, we saw Facebook turning over information about uh, where people were at various times so that the, the, the efficacy of quarantine and stay-at-home orders could be traced and supposedly all of that information was de-identified. We see Facebook uh, deploying surveys across the country to, uh, to collect information about symptoms and giving that information to researchers. And, uh, and so Facebook has said, well, people consented to sharing this information because you know we, we have a privacy policy and people are supposed to read it and they're supposed to consent before they can use our services. And the fact is no one gave consent to have their information used for purposes of uh, contact tracing in a pandemic. No one had a pandemic in mind when they opened a Facebook account and gave consent. And I'm using Facebook as an example and maybe even as sort of a proxy for many other tech companies. But these are the kinds of questions that, that we do need to grapple with. When information is collected by a Facebook or a Google or any other tech company for a certain limited purpose of providing a service, uh, is it then okay for them to use the data for a completely different and unanticipated purpose? And so federal privacy legislation would presumably provide some guidance about purpose limitations. And, uh, and so there are, there are lots of questions that are emerging. And frankly, we have more questions than answers. And it's one of the reasons I put in the op-ed, it would have been really great to have federal privacy legislation in place to at least provide some guardrails to help us grapple with some of these issues uh, during the pandemic and now during uh, nationwide protests and, uh, and national unrest. Here's a related question. Mind, from... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sure, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, Christine's last comment reminded me of uh, the, the case Jones, which we've discussed before, where Justice Sotomayor in her uh, concurrence actually put, put her finger on exactly this concern about what kind of consent there is when it comes to these technologies. And she, she asked, quote, you know, I would ask whether people reasonably expect that their movements will be recorded and aggregated in a manner that enables the government to ascertain more or less at will their political and religious beliefs, sexual habits, and so on. Uh, and I think this exact question that we're, we're trying to grapple with at the moment raises those issues, which is, well, because you click on uh, the terms and agreements uh, when you sign up for a Facebook account or Gmail, does that really mean that you're consenting to all the kinds of behaviors that are going on behind the scenes, uh, what Facebook and Google are doing with that data? And that's, uh, th that's a difficult question uh, for, I think, uh, lawmakers to grapple with because on the one hand, these, these companies have to be careful with their terms of service, but on the other hand, no one's ever going to read through the uh, dozens and dozens of pages necessary. So squaring that hole is going to be difficult. There's a related question uh, from uh, Segalen Brossard. Uh, again, good, good second question. Uh, Apple and Google define some privacy standards that the app developers have to comply with to be able to use their technology. Uh, do you, I think this is probably more directed to Christine, do you see this as a restriction of the government's sovereignty or I suppose uh, uh, an attack on, I don't know, FTC jurisdiction or something, or rather as a welcome initiative to protect privacy and 
uh, how would your proposed federal law, I'm adding this part, how would your uh, proposed federal law uh, affect this question? Great question. Uh, so the Federal Trade Commission over the course of many years has set out general principles with respect to consumer privacy. One of those is accountability for, for companies. And, uh, and in lieu of federal privacy legislation that puts limits on the kinds of information that can be collected or the kinds of uses to which information can be put, uh, the, the Federal Trade Commission has urged companies to abide by many of these principles. So data minimization, only collect the information that you need for the purpose that you're using it for, so that among other things, if you're hacked, that information is, uh, it is more limited in scope and can perhaps do less harm if it's exposed. Uh, De-identification, if you don't need to have identities associated with data, don't keep that data uh, in, in that way. And so a lot of those principles that the FTC has put forward, and frankly, that a lot of good privacy-focused organizations around the world have put forward, uh, are, are being adopted by companies in, in, in the vacuum that's been created by um, the absence of comprehensive federal privacy legislation. And, and so the point is, if Apple and Google are imposing minimum standards on the apps that are in their app stores, um, I, I would like to take a little bit of credit for the FTC for the fact that they are doing that. that the Federal Trade Commission has long urged companies to bear more of the responsibility to not rely solely on consent when we know consumers can't possibly read all of the disclosures that, that they receive. There have been studies done that, that calculate the hundreds of thousands of hours it would take for a consumer to read every privacy policy for every website and every service that he visits or uses. And it's, it's, it's a massive number of hours, hundreds of thousands of hours that it would take us. And so we know consumers aren't reading it. And part of, uh, part of the consequence of that is to say businesses need to be more accountable for risk assessment, risk management, having privacy policies in place, having vendor management principles in place so that if you give information to a third party like a researcher or a data broker, you are also asking them to be accountable for what they're doing with that data. And so um, maybe maybe a bit of a long answer, but, but I view those guidelines that get imposed as, as very welcome in, in the marketplace. I have uh, a couple of questions from Anonymous about HIPAA, the Health Insurance Privacy Act. I don't know if, Matthew, you've come across that in your research on contact tracing policy. Um, uh, one says, my neighbor has COVID. I feel they, I guess the government, the local government or someone should have informed me, but are they protected by the constitution to keep that info private? Well, it's not the constitution, it's HIPAA. And so we have, how does HIPAA factor into the contact tracing or privacy discussion? I mean, the uh, Health and Human Services is charged with enforcing it, but uh, how do, do, do other agencies also get involved? Yeah, I'm afraid I don't uh, have as, uh, as comprehensive an answer as the questioner might ask. Um, I've, I've spoken offline with our uh, health policy uh, director, Michael Cannon, uh, about HIPAA uh, in other contexts. And I know we did, uh, or at least we're planning to do an event on a book called Big Brother uh, in the operating room or in the hospital. I forget the exact title. But it's certainly true that, uh, look, there, there's a lot of uh, sensitive information about um, people's health that is out and about there. Um, but I, I don't want to claim to be a HIPAA expert, um, so I'd rather def uh, encourage anyone with questions about HIPAA in particular to follow the work of, of Michael Cannon and his colleagues, because it's something that he's certainly keeping an eye on. And, and Ilya, yeah, I, I too am a simple constitutional lawyer, so don't don't know much about HIPAA. <laughs> I, so I, I can I can talk a little bit about HIPAA, Ilya. So HIPAA protects oh, terrific. information and. HIPAA protects information in the hands of medical providers, your, your doctor's office, your hospital, but it does not collect health information that's collected by, uh, say, a Fitbit that you wear on your wrist or by health apps that you use on your phone. And frankly, that's one of the gaps 
because of emerging technologies that I mentioned uh, for, for a, yet another rationale for federal privacy legislation. And so there is a lot of information, a lot of health information that is collected now by devices and, uh, and is not covered by the protections that HIPAA offers because uh, that data is collected and stored outside of providers' offices and, and hospitals and so on. And so um, it, the, the question is a good one, but I think it also reminds us there are uh, exceptions for, uh, for various reasons, both under HIPAA and under, for example, children's privacy laws, where for safety reasons, information may need to be disclosed. And so the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, has long had the right to get information about people who test positive for various uh, diseases like tuberculosis. And, uh, and so in certain circumstances, we cannot expect uh, privacy about uh, you know illnesses that we have or diseases that we're carrying because it is necessary to protect society. And so uh, COVID positive names were reported to the CDC under various state laws and I think even a federal law. And so that is, um, it's something that we expect in this kind of circumstance and maybe it fits into the, the special needs exception that you mentioned at the top of the hour, Ilya. Um, and so, so again, there are tensions, there are competing interests in privacy and the need for uh, the, protecting the, the welfare of society. But, uh, but HIPAA, is, uh, HIPAA is an example of, of a place where we're, we're seeing gaps emerge. I had no idea that we had knowledge about HIPAA on this program. Fantastic. Um, we have a question now from Facebook, uh, Guinevere Liberty Nell. I don't know if Liberty is uh, her actual middle name or a gnome de guerre, but either way, terrific. Uh, and she asks, could anyone, private or public, be held responsible for not enforcing social distancing or other rules if people get COVID-19 by way of recklessness, whether by lawsuit or other means? or are the only dangers being too harsh on liberties? Uh, I'll take a first stab at that um, uh, by way of directing this question more to my colleague, Walter Olson, who was on our first Coronavirus in the Constitution uh, series. And he's been writing about uh, potential problems with being sued if you do, sued if, sued if you don't, uh, if a restaurant or another business uh, takes measures or doesn't take measures. Uh, the liability issues are, are pretty tricky. And that's why there's been a lot of uh, debate in Congress, uh, some question about whether Congress can change the rules for, for tort suits, after all, uh, for, uh, uh, for the country, whether it can preempt state law, there's that word again, or whether this needs to be on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is that does open up. If, if you went to a store and a week later you have COVID, what do you have to prove? Uh, can you sue that store in the first place, even if uh, the store ultimately wins. That's a lot of uh, of legal fees. Uh, what kind of precautions does the store have to take? And if it takes those precautions and you, uh, the customer or an employee still gets sick, uh, what does that mean? These are all uh, uh, very good questions, um, uh, but it's, it's uh, you know, with not many answers uh, right now, it's, we're, we're kind of playing on a, on an open playing field. But, but as I said, Walter Olson has written about this. Um, uh, Matthew or, or Christine, do you have anything on that? I would only add that it strikes me as just very, very difficult to be able to show for sure that you definitely got ill from a particular person or a particular store. I mean, one of the difficult things about this virus is that uh, you can have it for a while before exhibiting symptoms and you can catch it from people who aren't exhibiting symptoms. So that, that strikes me as uh, a potential difficult barrier. But but I, I, of course, defer to my colleague uh, Walter Olson on anything to do with uh, tort and uh, liability. All right, we have a question from uh, Steve Dewey in Arlington, Virginia, right next door to where I am in, in Falls Church, Virginia. He asks, what kind of differences exist in state emergency decree laws? That is, do some states have no emergency decree laws? Some have laws for certain time periods and have some state governors imposed emergency decrees that are both illegal and unconstitutional. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, yeah, this is an issue of state law, and, and I don't claim to have expertise over any state's law, uh, really. 
but each state has a different constitution, and states also, of course, have police powers. That is, the the, the public officials uh, in those states uh, exercise certain powers that might not even be listed in the constitution, unlike what is in the federal constitution, which is a finite list of all the powers that the federal government has. Now, those state constitutions and related federal sta- state statutes uh, will have limitations or regulations about how those powers can be exercised uh, for how long, when the legislature has to get involved uh, if you're exercising emergency powers. Of course, we're in an, an unusual type of emergency. When you t- t- think about the typical emergency, whether a, a hurricane or a tornado, a natural disaster, whether a mass shooting, uh, these things are short term. By definition, they end uh, in hours or, or days. And so there's not much more of a question of Uh, these broader powers lasting indefinitely. Well, we're now, as I said, into uh, the third month, uh, and there have been disputes, including litigated in state courts, about legislatures trying to override or end or sunset certain powers and courts ruling that certain powers indeed have sunset because there hasn't been legislative ratification. Others continue. uh, And that's a, a very, I think, healthy Uh, debate to be had. Um, Congress has passed, obviously, the PPP and other federal legislation certain states have done as well. So it's not that legislatures uh, can't meet at all. It's not like they've been uh, bombed and they literally do not exist. So um, state constitutions, state laws uh, do impose uh, certain kinds of restrictions. Of course, certain places, even if the legislature uh, acts, the governor might veto that kind of restriction. And so you do have a tension, and in some cases, something that could be characterized as a state constitutional crisis. But um, th- that's a very good question uh, in, in these times. Uh, question for Commissioner Wilson. Can you give more details or examples of what companies employed contract contact tracing to track protesters in Minnesota, or if indeed they did so, or if this is a, an urban myth based on this exaggerated statement by a uh, police commissioner. So I, I do not have the, the details other than what has been reported publicly. Uh, the, the gentleman in Minnesota used the word contact tracing and then I think um, tried to clarify what he said, but there are other examples reported Uh, or rumored on social media to be occurring. I don't know which specific contact tracing apps were deployed, but I think this is, this example highlights at least two or three issues. First of all, digital trust. And it's one of the reasons that in the Washington Post survey that I mentioned, people are very worried about uh, downloading these apps. Among other things, uh, there's just a lack of trust in, in big tech and whether our privacy will be protected. Uh, second of all, it shows that purpose limitations are important. We, we want limitations put on the uses to which data can be put once it's been collected from us. And so if I download a contact tracing app uh, for purposes of, you know, the altruistic purpose of protecting society. I don't want to be a spreader of coronavirus unwittingly. And so, sure, I will let uh, a company know that I have tested positive and, uh, and, and for altruistic purposes, others can be notified if they come in contact with me. But I certainly don't want my information, including my location information, to be used for a variety of other purposes. And third, I think it just highlights this connection between information that's collected for commercial purposes and information that ultimately gets used by the government. There is this inextricable link now because of the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And so we're talking not only about Fourth Amendment, but we're also talking about First Amendment, right to free speech, right to assemble, uh, free exercise of religion. Lots of civil liberties issues have popped up because of coronavirus and because of the national protests that we're seeing and uh, and the uses to which our data are put. We have a couple of related questions about actions by uh, private businesses or companies. Can shops and restaurants require temperature checks or documentation of negative tests or contact information for later tracing? That is, you make a restaurant reservation, you give all your information that's stored in a log. 
uh, query whether the government then looks at that log at some point uh, or not. Uh, do workplaces have the right to require this from employees? And relatedly, what about immunity certificates to board and fly airplanes? What I'll just say about all of this is that if it's a, a rule put in by that private business, restaurant, shop, airline, um, well, they can put in uh, pretty much whatever rules uh, uh, they want. And you can decide then whether you want to um, uh, go into that uh, store, restaurant, uh, fly that, that airline. It, it gets a little different if, uh, if it's a it becomes a government uh, a rule uh, or uh, regulation. But again, it's, it's subject to that police power uh, over which the, the, the challenges that we've discussed about, you know, for the last couple of months about restricting gatherings and uh, uh, closing uh, uh, businesses and, and shelter in place uh, and all the rest. So if there are some uh, justification for that kind of government uh, regulation, then it, it could be allowed. Now, in terms of keeping people's information and having the government check that later, uh, that runs into some problems with, for example, a uh, Supreme Court decision in a case called Patel versus City of Los Angeles, where the court struck down just the requirement that innkeepers, motel owners, uh, keep all these records that can be looked at by the police whenever they like without a warrant or or anything else. Here, the justification would presumably be stronger for, for contact tracing. Maybe as long as the uh, uh, information is is deleted or, or destroyed within two weeks, the incubation period of COVID or something like that, perhaps a regulation like that uh, could be drawn if there are other privacy protections. Uh, Matthew or Christine, anything on that? I would only add that it, it seems like it wouldn't necessarily be, be be required to gather this kind of information from most kind of customers. So the uh, majority of people who are still going to, to restaurants are going to make the reservation uh, online. Even if they just show up, there's a very good chance they'll use a credit or debit card in order to pay. Uh, they'll be leaving digital footprints everywhere. Uh, so it's not clear to me that if a, a state were really, really intent on tracking down people who were, say, at a restaurant in a certain time period that they would need some kind of special authorization or a new order or something like that. It seems to me that there's plenty of data already out there and mechanisms by which they could gather it. Uh, now, absent some kind of special new law that just allows them to get it wholesale or a, a special need, uh, there might be some hurdles that would frustrate law enforcement, but I don't think we should forget that uh, there's already many ways for people to gather that kind of information. Okay. Uh, another question from, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say from an FTC perspective, uh, there are principles again that would guide shopkeepers uh, activities here. So for example, data minimization, de-identification where possible, that sort of thing. Uh, and also I would commend to the person who asked that question, a very interesting read again, Travis LeBlanc's letter to acting secretary, Chad Wolf. Uh, Travis sits on the privacy and civil liberties board and he was addressing the airlines proposed collection of health information from passengers. And, uh, and he pointed out that that information could be both over-inclusive and under-inclusive. There are many reasons that someone could be running a fever, including just being in a state of agitation or being pregnant, as opposed to having coronavirus. And then under-inclusive, because we know many people with COVID-19 can be asymptomatic. And so he asked a host of questions about how the program would be implemented and about how the data would be used and uh, a variety of implications. And, and so I would commend to folks interested in this issue, um, I would commend that letter to you because he does, he does grapple with a lot of these issues. We have two related questions from Facebook. Uh, Cynthia Figueroa asks, it seems that never downloading the software is the only answer to avoid the contact tracing, which could impact the use of the phone. Is the only answer to get a flip phone? And then what if the federal government bans flip phones if they're being used to avoid tracking? A more technical uh, uh, related question to that from uh, Guinevere uh, Liberty Nell, uh, the UK contact tracing app was supposed to be open source and was on GitHub, but the updates to it have not been. New versions were added to the Apple App Store, etc. How does this affect the legality if the same thing happens in the United States? Um, I'm, I'm happy to take a stab at that. I, I would say that 
look, Google and Apple are private uh, companies, and if they mandate that some kind of contact tracing app is a necessary uh, part of an update, uh, it seems to me that there aren't that many uh, difficult legal questions there. Uh, I'm not saying there are none necessarily, but uh, that'd be much easier. Now, the government coming in and saying, look, to Google and Apple, you must impose or must have this uh, app installed on your next update, that, that's a very, very different kind of question. Uh, it would seem to me that uh, Ilya would know more than me, but I, I don't think the government would uh, do very well if it tried to ban an entire kind of phone uh, for this purpose. Uh, now, it's certainly true that, look, if, if you are a Apple or Google uh, user and you're not happy with these uh, with these apps and you have privacy concerns, uh, there are limited options if these uh, companies decide to make the app download mandatory. Uh, and flip phones may be one way to do that. But certainly if it's a private company and they've decided this is in the best interest of their users, it strikes me as um, less legally troubling than the government coming in and mandating that private companies uh, install certain technology. And with, right. with Question. respect to Go the ahead. privacy, I was going to say, with respect to the privacy consequences of those apps, so we've already seen one instance in which uh, a, a contact tracing app inadvertently disclosed information to third parties after guaranteeing that the information would not be disclosed to third parties. And so there's a lot of opportunity for mistakes here. In terms of FTC enforcement, uh, right now, a lot of our privacy enforcement in this area is based on our ability to get at deceptive active practices. And so if an app promises in its privacy policy that information will be maintained in a certain way, it will be held secure, it will not be shared with third parties except under specifically identifi identifiable circumstances, and then the information is shared in ways that controvert those promises, the FTC can go after the company for deceptive claims. Uh, we also have authority over unfair practices, although that's uh, much more amorphous. And so um, I, I would say that right now, the FTC's authority with respect to enforcing uh, any, any privacy issues for apps is, um, is, is too narrow. And uh, again, federal privacy legislation could help us but, but right now I can, I can guarantee that if you download an app and it promises it will only use your information in a certain way uh, and it violates that promise, that's an area where the FTC can get involved for a deceptive act. We only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, here's one question that probably goes to Christine again, given that she displayed knowledge about HIPAA. Maybe she knows something about this, this might be Arissa. Anyway, Jay Haynes from Twitter asks, early in the pandemic, my employer purported to require all employees to inform them if the employee or anyone in their family were diagnosed with coronavirus. That seems to be a step too far. Do you know anything about that, Christine? HIPAA, yes. Arissa, no. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, I can only surmise that uh, normally disclosing health, this might be a, a HIPAA thing. Or might, uh, anyway, uh, employment laws of various kinds, disclosing uh, employees' uh, health uh, information to each other is probably normally a no-no, uh, but might be allowed to prevent uh, the spread of cont contagion or uh, requiring employees to stay home, those kinds of rules, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, that would be backed up. But again, I'm not an expert on ERISA or whatever the more specific law uh, in this area might be. Um, oh, here's an interesting question. Again, going back to what Matthew was saying about the policy of contact testing, whether you do it digitally or the old fashioned way, the problem with testing aside from false positives is that someone testing positive isn't necessarily contagious and someone testing negative isn't immune from contagion. Doesn't this make contact tracing meaningless? I think it certainly calls into question how uh, feasible it's going to be to, to stop the, the, the spread. I mean, part of the worry throughout all of this is that uh, we're going to take a sledgehammer uh, to, a, to a nail and that many people who uh, shouldn't be told to, to, to stay at home and to, to uh, lock themselves down and the impact that could have on, on the economy in the long run uh, and potentially even people's health is uh, something that we should all keep in mind. Uh, unfortunately, look, this, this virus is, 
is a tricky one. Uh, the asymptomatic uh, is the, the length of time you can have it without going um, raises all different kinds of difficult issues. And uh, this gets back to what I was saying earlier, which is as well as the legal issues, we should also make sure to keep in mind the feasibility issues and the utility issues. Okay, and with that, I'm afraid we'll have to close. Uh, thanks very much to everyone for attending. Uh, we're sorry weren't, we weren't able to get to all the questions. There, there were quite a number. Uh, if you'd like to follow up with uh, any of us, our, our Twitter handles at least are on the event page, and uh, you can contact uh, me or any of my Cato colleagues through, through our website uh, as well. The video recording of the event will be available on the webpage later today. And with that, thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good weekend.